page 1148. Uh, last week, this week and next, you'll remember that we're working through these uh, challenging and slightly overwhelming um, sections from chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians as part of our, our series looking at this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Uh, last week, you might remember we had a QR code. There's a, another QR code uh, on the front of your service sheet that you can scan and submit questions anonymously. They all go in together. Uh, we got some wonderful questions last week, uh, which Lauren and I'll be recording some answers to. Um, and um, we know that we just simply can't cover all the complexities and the questions and the worries that can be raised in passages like this. So please do contribute uh, by asking any questions that come to mind. Um, they'll be of benefit, not only, I'm sure, for you, but for others as well who likewise probably have exactly the same kinds of questions. Well, I reckon there's probably little that can leave us more anxious and more unsettled than ambiguity. Particularly ambiguity when it comes to our relationships, whether intimate relationships or work relationships, ambiguity can be profoundly uncertain, not knowing where it is that we perhaps stand with other people can make us edgy. Uh, think about the different contexts in which we can experience this kind of ambiguity and worry. In a social context, we might ask, where do I stand with this group of people that I'm a part of? Do they see me as one of them? Am I viewed as an outsider or as an insider? That kind of ambiguity is unsettling. Or in the intimate sphere, intimate relationships, who am I to this one particular person who is precious to me? What do my closest relationships say about who I am? How do others perceive my most intimate relationships? And of course, in the spiritual context as well. How do my social relationships and my intimate relationships impact on my relationship with God? Could my relationships with others somehow compromise or undermine my relationship with God himself in some way? Now, we've already seen, you might recall, several weeks back from chapters 5 and 6, just how interconnected Paul considered each of these three spheres of relationships to be. You might remember several chapters back how Paul was addressing the man who was sleeping with his stepmother or those who are engaged in essentially what was casual sex with prostitutes. Paul highlights how that kind of behaviour, sexual behaviour, really does undermine our spiritual unity with Jesus and with the Spirit who dwells within us. And likewise, using that analogy you might remember of the leaven or the yeast spreading through bread, Paul had noted how such behaviour really can undermine the moral integrity of the church community. And yet even so, things aren't always as clear-cut and simple as those two particular scenarios, are they? Often our relationships are far more complicated in trying to understand what they are and how they impact both those around us and our relationship with God himself. When we become believers, we're already embedded in a whole web of different kinds of relationships. Some we have control over and we are perfectly free to adapt them or adjust them as becoming a believer changes who we are. But other relationships are far more complicated. 
Some come with obligations that we can't easily dismiss or just ignore for convenience sake. Some come with an emotional history that we can't just press delete and simply erase that emotional history from our minds and our thinking. Other relationships are up in the air. We, we, we are yet to decide exactly what we hope those relationships might yet become. Now, you might recall from a few weeks ago that for any compromised relationships that perhaps lie in our past, Paul has already unambiguously assured us that our standing before God is guaranteed. We have been washed. We have been sanctified. We've been justified. We've been declared in a right relationship with God, despite what might yet lie behind us over the course of our previous lives. But what about those relationships that even now we remain embedded in? Do they, perhaps, compromise our intimacy with God, our unity with each other, fellow believers? Such ambiguity was clearly the cause of significant anxiety for the Corinthian church, for the Corinthian believers. They were troubled at the thought that their existing relationships might somehow undermine either their intimacy with God himself or their unity with one another. And in today's passage, Paul goes into something of a deep dive into a bunch of complicated relational ambiguities that had been troubling the Corinthians. Now, although Paul primarily is dealing with intimate relationships, he also might, you might have noticed, addresses slavery at the end of our passage as a way of illustrating several key principles that Paul's going to use in his discussion over the course of today. So we're going to begin there at the end of our passage with the discussion of slavery and come back to Paul's comments on the more intimate relationships that we're a part of as well. Uh, Have a look with me at the end of our little section that we had read of chapter 7, verse 21. There Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, says, Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is a Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. We see here this following principle that Paul is going to cycle back to several times over today's passage, that our standing before God is not compromised by those situations over which we have no control, those situations within which we were bound when we came to know Christ and to trust Him. Uh, Slavery itself was a very common practice in the ancient world. Some historians believe that it might have even been entered into sometimes in order to achieve greater economic security, even increased social status and standing. Yet Paul is most certainly not endorsing the status quo of slavery that was held in the ancient world, in the ancient Roman world. Indeed, Paul insists there that no one should ever willingly give themselves into slavery, no matter what opportunity such a decision might afford you. Paul says we belong to the Lord Jesus. We should never willingly enslave ourselves to another master. And if anyone ever finds opportunity to gain freedom from such slavery, they should absolutely do so, says Paul. 
But what about the new believer, the person who's become a believer, who is already enslaved to a human master, who is powerless to to change their situation, who perhaps is even enslaved to a pagan master, even one perhaps who took sexual liberty with his slaves. Paul's assurance to these believers is that a slave need not be troubled or anxious, that their spiritual intimacy with God is somehow compromised or undermined because of this situation in which they found themselves bound. Within the church community and in their relationship with God, a believing slave is the Lord's free person. They are to enjoy the same status and honour as any freeborn believer does within the Christian community. Some people are concerned that Paul doesn't go a little bit further in his comments against slavery at this point. And and I think the reason why he doesn't is because he's not making a statement of political activism in this particular passage. Instead, he's seeking to comfort those who were spiritually anxious, those who are anxious that their status as slaves might somehow compromise their devotion and belonging to God. Paul's aim is to comfort those who felt that their status as believers was somehow spiritually ambiguous. Not so, says Paul. And in the rest of the chapter, Paul uses his same principle to comfort and assure those whose ambiguous, intimate relationships have perhaps left them feeling spiritually compromised or unsure. Uh, Let's go back to the beginning of our passage. Paul, first of all, addresses uh, the unmarried and the widowed in verse 8. Have a look there with me. Paul writes, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Uh, Paul's encouragement in these first couple of verses is about as countercultural as you could possibly get. Uh, Alice Russell, uh, who's a historian who's written extensively on the history of the experience of women in the Western world, uh, particularly focusing on the Greco-Roman context, the kind of context in which the Corinthians were living, wrote these words. She described how a widow was expected to remarry within a year and a divorcee within just six months. These were the social expectations under which the Corinthian believers were living. The motivation, she says, for these kind of expectations that were laid heavily upon people was because marriage was primarily a way of securing one's ownership and property, maybe even of maintaining or advancing your own social status and standing. Uh, The Roman Emperor Augustus, uh, with some significant concern about the declining birth rates in the empire actually led to a government kind of a government-backed push to ensure that people were remarried as quickly as possible after they'd either been divorced or widowed. He instituted legal penalties for women who remained unmarried too long when they had opportunity to remarry. The, The thought being that if people were allowed to remain unmarried, it would be socially destabilising for the empire, for Augustus's own hopes and plans for the great Roman Empire. 
Yet Paul explicitly undermines the Roman status quo that insisted on people getting remarried. Just as God had declared, and it was good, of the husband and wife in Genesis, Paul declares in this verse that it is good if they were to remain as they are, that is, unmarried. Unlike Augustus's attempt to socially engineer the empire's birth rates, our value to God and to God's people is in no way dependent upon our marital status. It is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus himself that ultimately secures the future of his world, not our marriages and our procreative abilities. And yet as subversive of the status quo as Paul's words were here, he does recognise that we are still bodily and relational beings. That is who he's made us to be, it's not a bug. We are bodily and relational beings and our affections for others can still grip and move us. Our adoration for a beloved is never simply academic. Uh, Paul, when he speaks here of burning with passion, isn't just speaking about people whose libido is too high to control. He's talking about those who are already in relationships with others that they adore and long to see that relationship fully consummated. And we'll look at that next week. The remainder of chapter 7, I think, helps us understand a little bit more about what Paul was speaking about here when he addresses the unmarried who burned with passion. Uh, Next week, uh, our final little section of chapter 7, we'll basically be unpacking those two verses, 8 and 9, and seeing what the rest of chapter 7 has to help us with in understanding those verses. But it wasn't only the unmarried or the widows in Corinth who evidently felt the ambiguity of their relational status and standing. Even within marriage itself, there were those who had asked Paul troubling questions about how their new faith might impact upon their relational status and standing, how becoming a believer might have impacted upon their relationship with others. If Paul himself had viewed singleness, remaining unmarried as good should they perhaps be rethinking their own existing marriages as well? Have a look with me at where Paul goes in our next verses, verse 10 and following. Verse 10. Paul continues, to the, unmar- sorry, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Note that in these verses, Paul expresses both clarity and concession. Clarity and concession in how he speaks to those who are already married. Paul's clarity that marriage is to be characterised by permanence is grounded in what the Lord Jesus himself had commanded You might remember that speaking to his disciples, Jesus himself had insisted what God has joined together in marriage, let no one separate. Now, it's simply too much for us to take a side journey this morning and to go back and revisit everything uh, that we have learnt about what Jesus has said about marriage and its permanence. Uh, On your service outline sheets there, I've included a little QR code under point B, Uh, that if you would like to, we looked at Mark's Gospel uh, a little while back and we spent uh, a whole time, a whole morning together reflecting 
on what Jesus himself taught and spoke about marriage uh, and its permanence and its character and nature. And if you'd like to go back and have a listen to that, uh, perhaps that will clarify any lingering questions that you might have by me dropping in Jesus' command or Jesus' uh, words that Paul refers to here in today's passage. But as far as Paul is concerned, there's no ambiguity about what Jesus himself expects of marriage. Even so, it's curious, don't you think, that Paul's words to husbands and to wives on this matter are not perfectly symmetrical in this passage. Did you notice that as we read through it? A husband, we're told, is simply instructed not to divorce his wife. Full stop, no further comment is offered by Paul at this point. And while wives are also instructed not to divorce or to separate from their husbands, there is a further allowance that Paul seems to make for wives at this point. Did you notice that that those who do choose to separate, Paul says, should remain so or else be reconciled to their husbands? Why this allowance? Why this separate concession that seems to be referred to with respect to wives but not mentioned at all with respect to husbands? The Scriptures regularly recognise that wives are typically more socially and relationally vulnerable than their husbands, especially in the ancient world which the Scriptures directly address. And I suspect that Paul is recognising here that given the particular kinds of vulnerability that wives in his day faced, there may be situations in which even the painfully ambiguous situation of an indefinite separation is preferable to naively insisting that a husband and wife be reconciled with one another. The ambiguity of such a separation in no way undermines the wife's standing or status as one of God's precious children, nor their status as a dear sister within the Christian community. Paul seems to recognise that there might be situations in which the ambiguous, prolonged period of separation is just more preferable, given the wife's vulnerability, than insisting she return to her husband. We reflected on some of those dynamics in that Mark sermon uh, that we looked at last year as well. Paul's desire here is ultimately to assure those who are spiritually troubled by their, their relational status that God himself does not overlook or sideline them. And this desire of Paul to spiritually assure those who are troubled in how they view their relationships is especially highlighted in the next little section in verse 12. Have a look there with me, verse 12. Paul continues, To the rest I say this, I and not the Lord. I think really that all Paul is meaning by that comment about it's, it's a comment from him and not from the Lord, is that this isn't a reference to some explicit statement or teaching that Jesus himself had given as he had done with divorce. Uh, to the rest, I say this, I and not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, 
and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Back in chapter 6, you might recall that Paul had expressed the horror at Christians, those who were one spirit with Jesus, were uniting themselves as one flesh with prostitutes. And perhaps it would be understandable should new believers, new members of the Christian community, be left feeling uncertain and anxious about their own marriages to pagan husbands or about the spiritual status of children that they had had with pagan husbands. These unbelieving husbands were quite possibly still engaged in sexual immorality themselves. Marriage contracts in the ancient world actually made allowances for such behaviour from husbands as long as it was outside the home and, and didn't result in the producing of heirs. A pagan husband would unquestionably, unquestionably have been involved in idolatrous worship of false gods. How might my one flesh union with such a husband impact my spiritual status? You can imagine women in the Corinthian church wondering with anxiety. And Paul seeks to calm their troubled minds and consciences by assuring them that the unbelieving husband or wife has been sanctified. Now, to be sanctified means to be set apart for God's use. Uh, In the Old Testament, God would sometimes even set apart pagan kings, like the king of Assyria, in order to do his work, to achieve his will. And Paul here isn't suggesting that the unbelieving partner is saved by association. Paul's not suggesting that they stand justified and forgiven by God just because they're in a marriage contract with a believer. It's certainly not the case that the unbelieving partner has become one of God's people or is an honorary believer, so to speak. Now, to be sanctified here simply means that they have been set apart as acceptable in God's eyes as one who can be a parent. An unbelieving pagan spouse will in no way compromise the child's spiritual standing by association, will in no way undermine the spiritual genuineness of the one who is united to them in marriage. Now, the marital mismatch, so to speak, between a believing and an unbelieving spouse is one that Paul will urge us next week never to willingly or deliberately enter into. And we'll come and have a a think about that with a bit more care next week when Paul addresses some of those issues particularly. Yet for those of us who do already find ourselves in the ambiguity of a situation when we come to Christ, we need not be troubled by it. It will not compromise the spiritual intimacy that you either enjoy with God himself or with one another as fellow believers. While a marriage to an unbeliever doesn't automatically compromise one's intimacy with Jesus, it could perhaps make us vulnerable to different kinds of grief. And Paul addresses that in the very next verse. Have a look with me at verse 15. Paul continues, but if the unbeliever, that is the unbelieving partner or spouse, leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, 
whether you will save your wife. Wives in particular had little recourse should their husbands choose to dissolve a marriage. Should a husband simply utter the words, you are to leave, that would have been sufficient ground for the marriage to be legally dissolved within the way in which the Roman culture of the day worked. And this left wives disproportionately vulnerable to suffering divorce. How much more likely would that be if if someone was to become a believer and have that tension, that that difference in their marriage that seemed unresolvable between a, a pagan husband and a believing wife? It wouldn't have been uncommon for wives to have found themselves in that kind of situation on becoming believers. I was reading some excerpts from uh, some ancient Greco-Roman marriage contracts this past week, just doing a little bit of research, when I came across this clause that was inserted in marriage contracts, specifically aimed at wives. The, the wife had to agree to this, is an odd thing to put in a contract. The wife is not to mix in his, that is the husband's food or drink, any love potions or poison, nor be an accessory to such an action. It's hard not to have a little bit of a giggle uh, at the thought of someone signing uh, such a statement in their wedding contract or their marriage contract. But if we pause to think about it for a moment, both extremes of action, the, the forbidding of love potions or of poisons, testify to the marital vulnerability that particularly wives often faced. Their relative powerlessness in exercising any control over their own fates that might lead them to resort to love potions or poisons. But Paul spares the deserted believer the burden, any shame of having to pursue the unbelieving spouse at any cost. The believer, Paul says, is not bound, literally they're not enslaved to the obligation of sustaining that marriage which the other partner is determined to leave and to walk away from. Paul says we're called to live at peace with those around us. The fate of an unbelieving spouse is not ours to decide or to even seek to control. The believer is not to resort to potions or poisons or anything in between in order to save face to try and dodge a divorce out of any anxiety that it could compromise their standing within the new Christian community, a part of which they've just become. As heartbreaking as such a loss must often surely have been, a believer's own place among the church community is not compromised or to be put under suspicion if they were to endure such a situation. Now, throughout all the rather bewildering complexities, throughout all the relational ambiguities that Paul has been addressing in these verses, has been threaded this same key principle that we find referred to in verse 17 and 20. Let me have a read of those for you. If you look down to verse 17, we read it earlier in respect to slaves as well. But Paul also mentions this in verse 17. Paul says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. And again in verse 20, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. 
and in verse 24, brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they are in when God called them. This is not Paul advocating for just keeping the status quo. Paul's encouragement here that they remain in the situation they're in is an instruction that he's given to calm their anxieties. Don't let it trouble you. Don't let it undermine your spiritual sense of assurance if you remain in these, what seem to be, ambiguous and compromised situations. The complicated and often ambiguous dynamics of our various relational situations need not undermine our belonging to God and to one another, particularly where it is simply beyond our capacity to alter our situation. Paul is assuring these believers that our intimacy with God and our intimacy with one another as fellow believers is not compromised or undermined. We don't need to first successfully curate our lives into unambiguous showpieces of relational perfection before we are acceptable to God or can belong to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, I want to urge you as we finish our time together this morning to hear these words of encouragement and comfort that Paul is seeking to speak to those within their Christian community whose lives on the face of it seem relationally compromised and messy, even difficult to even understand or to comprehend. Paul's assurance for them is that their standing before God and their standing with one another is not compromised or undermined in the least. Friends, we need to think carefully how we relate to one another, how we encourage each other, how we open ourselves to each other in love and care to ensure that we don't confuse a clear and ambiguous relationship in a marriage or in some other kind of relationship as being the same or equating to an unambiguous relationship with the Lord Jesus himself. Paul says we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified. And Paul calls all of us, whatever situation we are in, to rest in that confidence of our standing before him. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we praise you that you call and draw to yourself people who formerly had not known you, people whose own lives and histories are complex, often hidden to us, mysterious to us, whose futures as well seem sometimes uncertain and bewildering, whose present situations can be difficult and complicated. Father, we thank you that you don't relate to us with any of that same degree of ambiguity. That even those who are enslaved are your freed people, our freed brothers and sisters. Thank you, Father, that you have washed us, sanctified us, justified us, that we might share the status of your precious son, the Lord Jesus himself, and to share that status with one another as well. 
Father, we ask that you would teach us to rest confidently in the unambiguous status that we enjoy in your sight. No matter what kinds of ambiguity we might struggle with in the other spheres of our relationships with one another and beyond the church community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, please do feel free to send through uh, any questions. Scan that little QR code on your sheet and send them through. If we don't answer any of them uh, today, uh, we'll be able to come back and record some answers to them in the week to come.